0: Richard Kallenberg makes his controversial recommendations so quietly that you may have to lean close to understand him. He's been called a liberal maverick. When I told him he sounded a little gentle for a maverick, he laughed. He's a maverick because he's spent the last few decades working to dismantle race-based affirmative action. Do you remember the first time you heard the term affirmative action?
1: It was probably in uh, middle school or high school.
0: Do you remember having a reaction to it?
1: Oh, I was very much in favor of it.
0: Rick grew up in a traditional upper-middle-class, white, liberal household. This was in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. His dad was a minister. Rick started to question affirmative action in college— That's when he looked around and wondered, can't we do better than this? By the way, Rick does not call himself an opponent of affirmative action, per se. He's more specific than that.
1: I think I'm arguing for affirmative action, just a different kind of affirmative action, affirmative action based on on class. Uh, So what what I'm questioning is whether racial preferences are the best way to get there.
0: When Rick talks about turning affirmative action on its head, he says he's borrowing from Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, leaders who fought against racial injustice and poverty. But Rick wants to put class in the foreground, not race. He thinks if anyone gets a special advantage in the college admissions process, it should be poor kids. And he believes in this approach so strongly that he's teamed up with conservative attorneys who are asking the Supreme Court to abolish affirmative action completely. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court, it is widely expected to curtail the use of affirmative action when it rules later this month, but the court has surprised observers recently. Like, the chief justice just voted to preserve the Voting Rights Act, which shocked plenty of people.
1: I was just going to say, I, I, I was very heartened by that decision. And I think it suggests that there are at least a couple of conservative justices who are likely to take this more moderate path, which suggests you can't use race in admissions.
0: It's interesting to hear you describe this path as moderate. I think plenty of people would disagree with that description.
1: Well, if you look at public opinion, the Pew Research poll found that 74% of Americans do not want race used as a factor in who gets admitted to college. So, it's not a right wing position to have qualms with racial preferences.
0: That poll was from last April. But another poll from this April shows that just over half of Americans still think affirmative action is needed. Either way, a lot of Americans do agree with Rick, but that doesn't mean he feels like his ideas have been embraced, especially among fellow liberals.
1: It's uncomfortable to disagree with friends.
0: Do you disagree with your friends on this?
1: A lot of my liberal friends are quite upset that that I take a different position than the orthodox one on affirmative action. And I work with civil rights groups on on school desegregation, on labor issues, getting better funding for community colleges, on, on, on the vast majority of issues. It's been hard. To disagree with them on this particular issue, but I think at the end of the day, I think I will soon be working with uh, those friends to figure out new paths to uh, racial diversity that acknowledge, uh, you know, the, the kind of the hidden injuries of class
0: in America. You're excited a little bit.
1: Well, I'm not excited yet because we don't know what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule.
0: Today on the show, if the Supreme Court does get rid of race based affirmative action, what might end up replacing it? And will it be better? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to start at the beginning for affirmative action if we can. Many people trace the philosophical roots of affirmative action back to this speech that President Lyndon Johnson gave at Howard University in 1965. Can you give a little context for this speech? Like, do you, Have you written about it? Do you know of it?
1: I do. I think it's a wonderful speech.
0: Nothing in any country
1: touches us more profoundly and nothing is more freighted with meaning for our own destiny than the revolution of the Negro American. Lyndon Johnson, uh, like Martin Luther King, was grappling with the question of what now? We, they just passed you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which said no more discrimination. But there is a need to address hundreds of years of oppression against black Americans in particular. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Importantly, if you look at The speech and what Lyndon Johnson actually proposed and what Martin Luther King actually proposed was not a system of racial preferences. Both advocated economically-based programs that would disproportionately benefit Black and Hispanic people. And I think that, you know, in an important sense, we will be, in the very near future, picking up a lost thread of thought that King and Johnson were advancing.
0: You were just a toddler, I think, when Johnson gave that speech. And you eventually ended up at Harvard University. When you arrived there, did you feel like Johnson's ideals of fairness had been fulfilled? No. Hmm. Why not? Well,
1: I think they still haven't been fulfilled. I mean, we see big racial inequalities all around us. Uh, And we see large and, and growing class inequalities all around us much worse than when Johnson spoke.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were a legacy at Harvard, right? I was. Did that impact you? How did you think about that? Because it certainly speaks to your privilege.
1: Absolutely. And I think a large part of the fact that I'm focused on on class-based preferences is out of a a sense that I've had all sorts of advantages in life. My kids have had all sorts of advantages in life. You know, by focusing only on race, we miss this huge issue of of class inequality. And legacy preferences are the worst form of of class discrimination that has a huge, you know, disparate impact on on people of color, it's astounding to me that you know in the in the litigation, Harvard and UNC defended the use of legacy preferences. They're anachronistic. They're completely unfair. You know, there, there's never been uh, a really strong argument in favor of legacy preferences.
0: If Rick Collenberg had his way, college admissions in the U.S. would be transformed. It's not just that legacy admissions would go out the window, though they would. Schools would also admit students based on the hurdles they and their families had to overcome, not just academics. And once disadvantaged students were admitted to elite institutions, they'd get academic and social support so they could succeed. To Rick, this looks like restoring a moral core to the admissions process. He says now... Lots of kids simply don't stand a chance.
1: The system systematically excludes all these talented students from working-class backgrounds who could contribute so much to our society but are, are mostly shut out now.
0: But once you're creating an elite space, aren't you by necessity excluding people? There will be reasons to exclude people if you are choosing, basically. And that's not going to go away. That's right.
1: I think the difference is you want the rationale for exclusion to feel fair. And being excluded because someone's getting a legacy preference doesn't feel fair to people. That's why 75% oppose. And for a lot of people, being excluded because of race also feels unfair.
0: But Rick's fight to make college admissions more fair has meant forging an unlikely alliance with a conservative activist named Edward Bloom. Bloom has spent decades fighting to limit the Voting Rights Act and ensure Republicans can maximize their political influence. In recent years, he's also been bankrolling court cases that attack affirmative action. The case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now is one of his. In it, students argue that Harvard and the University of North Carolina have crafted admissions policies that end up excluding white and Asian applicants. And Rick Collenberg, he's testified in support of this argument. So I asked Rick about the decision to work with Bloom.
1: Yeah, we, we do have different, different interests. Uh, and uh, to be clear, my position uh, in the testimony in the case is different than, uh, than Edward Bloom's or Students for Fair Admissions. So I testified that Harvard and the University of North Carolina could, given all the evidence, achieve racial diversity by using class-based preferences. I said that if there were other colleges in the country that tried faithfully to implement class-based affirmative action and could not produce racial diversity, that I would favor using Race as a last resort
0: did you ever consider not getting involved?
1: I thought long and hard about whether I should get involved. I had been uh, you know an advocate for class-based affirmative action and and written articles and books and so this was a step from outside advocate to a Participant in the process, uh, and I recognize that there would be, uh, you know, costs to doing that.
0: What have the costs been?
1: Well, I would just say, in terms of some relationships with with friends of mine, uh, in in the civil rights community, and others, there are people who don't understand uh, why I've taken the position that that I do.
0: Did you have a moment where you regretted your choice?
1: No, no, I haven't regretted uh, my choice. I guess if the Supreme Court uh, strikes down race and strikes down the ability of socioeconomic status, you know, to use socioeconomic status and admissions, that would be deeply disappointing to me. Uh, but I, I don't have, uh, I don't have regrets.
0: After the break. If the Supreme Court does put an end to racial preferences, Rick says it'll force elite institutions to change the way they operate. Is that true?
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Make no mistake. Rick Kallenberg knows this
0: Supreme Court case we're waiting on has the power to blow up the way the college admissions process works. But he welcomes that. To him, the path universities are on right now Valuing diversity but not reckoning with class means schools simply admit privileged students across the board. That whole approach seems cynical to him.
1: They take the easy way out, and this will, you know, this Supreme Court decision will present a crisis that will also open up an opportunity to transform college admissions and do lots of important things.
0: The reason Rick is so certain this transformation is going to happen, he says, is because it already has. Nine states have eliminated racial preferences for their public universities. And when he examines the evidence, Rick sees all the ways these states have innovated to boost the numbers of black and brown students they let in.
1: I mean, so back in, in 1996, before any of these anti Uh, race-based affirmative action initiatives have been passed at the state level. There was an empirical question, an open question. Uh, You know, if you eliminate the use of race, what happens? And what will universities do? And it was possible that universities would simply throw up their hands and give up. Uh, That didn't happen. You had uh, the adoption of programs in both blue states and red states, of new forms of affirmative action. And in most cases, those, those new forms uh, worked quite well to produce racial diversity and, and more economic diversity as well. At a place like the University of Texas, for example, at Austin, uh, they created the top 10% plan. You're admitted in the top, top 10% of your high school and if you, you know, automatically admitted to UT Austin and uh, and you saw working class and low income students who would never had access to UT Austin before uh, suddenly have have the, the opportunity to attend uh, an elite institution in the state of Texas.
0: But that's a public elite institution. I don't think we're going to see Harvard say Every person in the top 10% of their graduating class gets into Harvard or even the top
1: 1%. Yeah, no, they'll they'll use socioeconomic preferences, not, not a geographic approach. Uh, but we we ran the numbers in the Harvard case, and they can produce a lot of racial diversity by adopting a number of a number of important programs that have that don't rely on a percentage plan approach.
0: Harvard University disagrees with your take, right? Yes. What do they say?
1: So Harvard says that you cannot produce sufficient racial diversity using class. They say you need legacy preferences because uh, it helps with fundraising. They say you need preferences for the children of faculty because otherwise you can't recruit faculty to Harvard a number of implausible claims. They also said that if you implemented a class-based affirmative action system, you would see SATs uh, drop from the 99th percentile to the 98th percentile, and that's unacceptable.
0: Why do you disagree with those claims?
1: Well, I mean, we can take each one. Uh, so the in terms of the academic preparedness of the class, going from the 99th percentile to the 98th, When you suddenly have many more working class students who've had to overcome obstacles in life, uh, suggests to me a a stronger group of students, you know, ones who've who've done amazingly well considering the, the hurdles they've had to face in life. And they have more potential in the long run than students who've been given lots in life already and scored at the 99th percentile. In terms of legacy preferences, there's there's no Harvard provided no evidence that it, uh, you know that they would have run into trouble if they couldn't use legacy preferences. I mean Oxford and Cambridge don't use legacy preferences. Caltech doesn't use legacy preferences. Amherst doesn't use legacy preferences. They seem to survive the testimony on the ways in which Faculty child preferences are necessary to uh, recruit faculty to a place like Harvard. I mean, I, it just there there wasn't any evidence provided, and it, it it made no sense. Doesn't pass the laugh test.
0: Part of your evidence that this is a good idea is basically schools that have eliminated affirmative action have figured it out because plenty of schools have. Eliminated race-based affirmative action. But it's interesting to me, the AP recently had an article where they spoke to admissions directors and they seem distressed at the idea that affirmative action may be eliminated as a way that they help to bring students into their school. Right. Well, the
1: evidence from... The states where affirmative action or race-based affirmative action was banned suggests, number one, that seven out of 10 selective colleges were able to get as much Black and Hispanic representation as they had in the past using race. Now, the three outliers are the ones that everyone has talked about, uh, University of Michigan, UCLA and UC Berkeley. Uh, So.
0: I feel like we should be specific about the numbers in terms of representation because they're really stark. Like at University of Michigan, they made a big push to do a lot of the things that I think you would like to see done, like going out into low-income communities, offering college prep classes, offering scholarships for low-income Michigan residents, and black enrollment has slid from 8%. Still quite low in 2006 to 4% now. That's very small. Michigan does not have a 4% black population.
1: Right. So Michigan is the, is the one that has struggled the most. We want to look a little more closely at what Michigan does and what it doesn't do. Uh, well, to begin with, uh, you know, the Le- University of Michigan uses legacy preferences in admissions. So they're not doing everything that they can to achieve racial diversity without using race. They also use merit, non-need merit aid, uh, which is is very difficult to defend. So this is giving aid to people who don't need the money because their SAT scores are higher, and they'll make University of Michigan look better on the on the uh, U.S. News and World Report rankings. So so Michigan isn't doing everything it can. Uh, A second thing to note is that Michigan is fighting a very, very unfair uh, effort to recruit talented black and Hispanic students. So consider that you're, you know, if you're a university of Michigan, you can't give a preference based on race. Virtually all of your competitors can. So... uh, you're you're fighting for talented black and hispanic students with one one arm tied behind your back.
0: I wonder what you'd say to someone who looks at affirmative action and just says it's a really important corrective that recognizes where the country is and eliminating this it'll change how the whole system works in a way that could be really really detrimental.
1: Oh, I think I think to the contrary, it will Change the system in a way that will recognize the fact that some kids go to uh, under-resourced schools, that they grow up in dangerous neighborhoods, that their their families struggle economically and can't get, you know, don't have the resources to give them an SAT prep class. All those things should be considered in the admissions process. And and they're really not fully considered now because colleges have a strong financial interest to admit wealthier students of of all colors. And I expect once that easy route is cut off by the Supreme Court, that universities will begin for the first time to really uh, grapple with the inequalities of opportunity in this country that are related to race uh, and fundamentally rooted in class.
0: But those financial interests aren't gonna go away. The colleges are still gonna wanna have fat endowments, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's why it's so important that colleges uh, have become deeply aware of the importance of racial diversity. Uh, they will need to change priorities in order to maintain racial diversity. And a number have already said that they they will do what it takes to make sure that they're educating a, a diverse population. Uh, and they're going to need support from from federal and state officials to make sure they have the, the resources to to do this.
0: Do you ever think about where you would be personally? if the policies you advocate for had been in effect when you were going through the higher education system like we've talked about how you went to harvard you were a legacy you also went to harvard law school like what do you think your journey would have been if you were living in the world you want to create
1: that's a great question i mean i i I and my kids and my grandkids would have been and will be disadvantaged by a system that uh, provides a leg up to low-income and working-class people of all races, and that's you know that's that's a reality. It's it's precisely because I recognize that that I and my kids and my grandkids have have all sorts of advantages in life that. I think it's important to open up the system so that others could, could benefit as, as well.
0: Richard, thank you so much for joining me and for your
1: research. Okay, well, thank you so much. It was, it was wonderful to be with you, Mary.
0: Richard Kallenberg is a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's also a lecturer at George Washington University. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.